We're beginning a new series this morning, and we're going to be in the Gospel of John. John is in the New Testament. It's the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right before the book of Acts. And our new series is called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I love a good story. I love a good book, and I love a good movie. And if we were together today, I'd probably spend some time asking, what is one of your favorite stories or movies or books uh, that you've gone through, and I know we'd all say, oh, the Bible, because that's what you say when you're at church, but um, since we all would say that, what is a movie you really enjoy, you could watch over and over again? What is a book that maybe during this time you found yourself rereading, or a TV show you're going through yet once again and still enjoying it just like you did the first time? I know for our daughter, she loves My Little Pony, and much to our son's dismay, she watches it over and over again, and she loves that story. Uh, my son is obviously a Star Wars fan, just like me, and, and so we've watched Star Wars stuff numerous times uh, during this stay-at-home order. My wife, just this last week, read two books within three days that she really enjoyed, and she's been watching a lot of romantic comedies, um, which I'll admit I have not watched with her, um, but uh, I know she's been watching them, and there have been ones she's watched before. Uh, but. Uh, she's been enjoying those things and we love stories and we love movies and we love books and we love going through those again the ones that really capture our heart and that's the interesting thing about stories because we all can define what is good and what isn't good um, and it just kind of comes down to who we are as individuals for me personally when I start a movie or a book or a TV show there has to be something in the very beginning or near the beginning that's going to draw me in. And so for a TV show, it may be a joke or a, a character that I just, I find humorous and I wanna know more about what they are going to do through the story and, and how that's gonna play out. Um, it, it's sometimes something we relate to, uh, whether an individual or a situation is going on in the midst of people or a conflict that is introduced in the beginning which we want to know, how are they going to resolve this? How is this situation going to come to a conclusion? And a lot of movies I've, I've seen kind of start in the middle or near the end of the movie where it shows this scene and then it jumps back to the beginning like six weeks earlier, six days earlier, and you begin working your way to how they got to that situation and then how that's going to be resolved. You know, typically in movies and books, this introduction to draw us in is done through what is called an introduction or a prologue. Star Wars, for example, has in a galaxy far, far away. Lord of the Rings does this in summarizing what's been going on in Middle Earth. Fairy tales begin with once upon a time and begin to draw us in. Uh, for me though, I can typically decide within about 10 minutes of a movie, maybe even shorter when it comes to a TV show, whether or not I'm going to remain invested in that and continue to watch. I can do the same thing with books in a matter of a chapter or two, because something has to grab our heart. It has to grab our imagination in order for us to stay involved in the story and see how this plays out. This is John's intent when it comes to the gospel and the story of Jesus. Like I said, we're beginning a new series, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And some of y'all may be familiar with the old hymn, uh, to which I ripped this title from. I'll admit, I'll give Fanny Crosby the, uh, the credit for that. The chorus of the hymn says, Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story most precious, sweetest that ever was heard. And the story of Jesus is a story that everyone needs to hear. 
and, and everyone needs to understand, but more importantly, every believer needs to understand the story. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're going to be looking at all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we're going to begin to piece them together chronologically to get this beautiful picture, this beautiful image of the story of Jesus, which is our salvation. The series is going to take some time, so no doubt we will be together before we are done with this series. It may take a couple years, but through it, my prayer is that we, be, we gain a deeper understanding of Jesus' ministry, his teachings, his miracles, his life, and how we should live in response to what Jesus did and the story. So we're going to begin our series, just like any good book or movie or show, with a prologue. See, the story of Jesus doesn't begin in Bethlehem. It goes back much further, and the Gospel of John wants us to know that. So we're going to begin in verse 1 and read through verse 18 of chapter 1 in the Gospel of John. And the Word of the Lord says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This is, was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's hand, side, he has made him known. And to understand the Gospels, one thing we need to understand is who God commissioned to write each and every Gospel, and that particular one, and to what audience it was originally intended to. So the names of each gospel are the authors of that gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke are those names, and then John. And we'll talk more about Mark and Luke next week. The Apostle John is also one who was commissioned to write the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation. John is the son of Zebedee. He was originally a fisherman. He had a brother named James, who was also an apostle and an original follower of Jesus Christ. James would be martyred in the book of Acts. It is John who was part of the inner circle of disciples as he and his brother James and Peter would be allowed to see things and witness things of Jesus that some of the other disciples didn't get to do. For example, John saw the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. He sat next to Jesus in the upper room. He was called deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane with, with Peter and James, in which Jesus began to pray and ultimately was betrayed. He followed Jesus to his trial held by the Jewish leaders, which was an illegal trial. He was at the cross with Jesus' mother, and the Bible lets us know he was the first disciple, not the first individual, 
but the first disciple that would make it to the empty tomb on Resurrection Sunday. Most place the writing of this gospel by John as he was leading the church in Ephesus. And so that allows us to know the audience was an audience of Gentiles and Jews and Greco-Romans. The gospel itself is heavy in salvation language, speaking of eternal life found only in Jesus Christ. It points to Jesus' equality with God and Jesus being the Messiah of the Jewish people, but also the Savior of the entire world. In the Gospel of John, we have stories to which we don't find in the other Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as synoptic Gospels, which means they're the most similar. But the Gospel of John, we have stories and teachings and sayings of Jesus we don't find in those Gospels. For example, one of the most famous verses comes through a conversation Jesus has with a man by the name of Nicodemus in John chapter 3, which isn't found in any other Gospel. And in that conversation, Jesus delivers one of the most famous verses, For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. The uniqueness of John's gospel is also found in the opening verses. John wasn't led to begin like the gospel of Matthew, which goes through the genealogy of Jesus Christ going all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jews. John doesn't begin like the gospel of Mark, jumping right into the story. He doesn't begin like the gospel of Luke, who begins to stay of Jesus' forerunner in John the Baptist. John's opening, his prologue, is more complex. And so to understand how Jesus is the Savior of the world, John is led to go back to the beginning. Look there in verse 1. It says, in the beginning. It's to remind us of the opening of the Bible found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is being led by the Spirit to use creation language here. It is meant to reveal that God's plan of salvation, the story of Jesus, and our means to be saved and forgiven was always on God's heart which means that we were always on God's mind and God's heart. Before sin could infect God's creation, God had the redemption plan in place. God was not taken by surprise when Adam and Eve disobeyed him. God knew it was going to happen. Just as God knows the sins that we struggle with and the sins we battle with, he's not surprised by those things. Even when we fall into sin, God isn't taken by surprise. He knows before it is even going to happen. So what we see in the opening is John is pointing out before sin even could exist, salvation existed. The opening of John's gospel points to the deity of Christ, and John does not want any reader of his gospel to miss this important attribute of Jesus. Jesus wasn't just a good moral teacher. He wasn't just a good moral man who had some good ideas. Jesus was the full embodiment of God. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And just to make sure that anyone who would read this gospel wouldn't miss what John is trying to emphasize, in verse 2, he re-emphasizes it. He was in the beginning with God. The word, word, there in verse 1, is the Greek word logos. Logos was to resonate with all of the audience which would read this gospel. For the Greek, Logos was the shaping and the ordering and the directing principle in the universe. It was a, a participant in all of the divine order. For the Stoics, Logos was the divining principle permeating throughout the ordered cosmos. For the Jews, Logos was the basis of covenant given to Abraham. 
It was the establishment of the law delivered through Moses. It spoke of God's relational closeness to his people and was the key to all wisdom. One commentator writes that this word, logos, had a wide range of usage in the first century world. It would touch a large cultural and philosophical context. And using it, John would have made chords to resonate with the minds of a wide variety of his readers. So just like we are drawn into stories and movies and books, so John is drawing us in to the story of Jesus. The word beginning there in verse 1 speaks of origin, meaning before there was even a beginning, there was the word. Yet it isn't until verse 14 and verse 17 to which we find out who or what this word is, the only son from the Father, Jesus Christ. So like a good story, John is drawing us in to want to know, okay, who is this word that was in the beginning that was with God and is equal to God and was in the beginning with God? Who is this? What is this? But since we know the story, here's a little spoiler alert. God was in the beginning and Jesus was in the beginning. Not only that, but the Holy Spirit was in the beginning. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 2 says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So why is this important? Some of us may know this, but maybe it's good just to be reminded of this. It's important because God did not leave our salvation to chance. There's been a lot of shows that our family's been watching, and, and one particular type of show we've been watching quite frequently is food cooking shows and, and uh, competitions. One of those shows happens to be a show by the name of Chopped. And if you're not familiar with the show Chopped, basically they have four contestants who are given mystery bag or mystery baskets, and in those baskets are four ingredients to which the contestants have to make a, a edible meal. Uh, and something that looks appealing and something that the judges would want to eat. And so they pull them out and they begin putting these things together to come up with either an appetizer or a main course or a dessert. And at times when I watch your show, it just seems like they're winging it and throwing stuff together and hoping that something comes out of it that can work. And a lot of, when, when, I, when I think of that concept, it's the exact opposite of what God did. See, God didn't wing something together after sin entered the world. God has beautifully orchestrated our means to be forgiven, saved, and given eternal life. This is how much God loves us. Before we even knew sin existed, before we even existed, God has been orchestrating the means of our salvation. It says Jesus was there and he was with God meaning Jesus worked alongside God in creating all things that were created. So this should help us as we read through the Old Testament and we see God speaking and God acting. That's Jesus speaking and acting as well. And verse 3 says, All things were created through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. See, John doesn't want us to diminish the power and authority of Jesus Christ and is saying something that other believers would come to understand when it came to Christ. The Apostle Paul would write in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, uh, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him 
And all things were created for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The writer of Hebrews says it like this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, we can trust Jesus and the story of Jesus, our Savior, because it is, his, it is His Word, His power, His authority, His love, which created all things, and that includes us. Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit, knows every intricate detail about our life. And so if you've ever found yourself wanting to know God more, if you've had desire, I just wish I could know God more, then here's the thing. You need to read the story of Jesus. Jesus is both the revelation of God and the revealer of that revelation. He is both the proclaimer and the proclaimed. The message of the incarnation is that God's audible logos has become visible and has been revealed. Jesus is the life because he created light. Jesus is the light because he created light. And Jesus came to shine the light of God to men in the same way that God spoke light into existence in Genesis chapter 1. Now light and darkness throughout scripture speak of two opposing forces where light is more powerful than darkness. It says there in verse 5, and the darkness has not over overcome it, meaning the light Light is frequently referred to in Scripture as the glory of God, while darkness is frequently referred to as sin and living in sin. Jesus points this out in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 19. He says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, speaking of himself. And the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. As Jesus is the light of men, there in verse, uh, verse 4, so when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and for who He truly is, we become the light of the world. In other words, we are God's glory in the world. As a child of God, we are the living, breathing, walking glory of God's eternal salvation story found in Jesus Christ and began in the very beginning of all things. As believers, we represent the light and the glory of God to a world that is in darkness. And this world is not more powerful than the light that lives inside of us. See, darkness is simply an absence of light. And we are to be the light which shines into the darkness, penetrating it. We are like John, and that's John the Baptist in verse 6 through 7, and again mentioned in verse 15. We are like John in that we are sent from God. But we are not like John in the way that we are coming to prepare the way for the Lord. But instead, we are going out into this, this dark world with the light inside of us to prepare the way for the return of the King, the true light and the full glory of God, which will be revealed when Jesus returns. See, John came as a witness. That word witness means to testify. It is a legal term used to describe someone who presents and proclaims and speaks truth within a court of law. And so like John, we are not the light, but we are to speak about the light which we have come to know in Jesus Christ. The story of Jesus which we have accepted is to be presented, proclaimed, and spoken of in this world by those who have accepted it. The story of Jesus is God has been speaking his word of salvation from the beginning. And we, we are now invited to join in God's eternal announcement. 
We are to be walking and talking billboards of God's glory, His light. In doing so, we need to be aware not everyone is going to be able to understand the story of Jesus, and not everyone's going to accept the story of Jesus. In the opening of the Gospel of John, we find some of the saddest verses in Scripture. Look there in verse 9. The true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to everyone, that's us, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, that's going to be the Jewish people, and his own people, the Jewish people, the people of covenant, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There are people who are going to see the light in us and not know what it is. Why do you do what you do? Why do you say that? Why do you act the way you do? Why do you conduct yourself the way you conduct yourself? And since they don't know what that light is that's inside of us, we have to tell them. And then there's going to be people who see the light in us and see what we stand for, and they're just not going to receive it. John is setting up the conflict, which is going to play out through all four of the Gospels and revealed through the telling of the story of Jesus. There are going to be some who do not know, and there are going to be some who will not receive. Now, the knowing aspect is on us. We have to let people know the story of Jesus. Whether they receive it or not is not on us. Whether they receive it doesn't diminish the authority of the word that we have accepted or speak power over the light to which we have inside of us. But we can be certain there will be those who did receive him. Because we are one of those people that have received the story of Jesus. There will be those who, who receive Christ and they will be given the right to become children of God. That word right means privilege and honor. See, when I have accepted Jesus Christ, when I have received the story of Jesus, I have now become a privileged and honored individual before God. If you've received the story of Jesus, you now stand privileged and honored before the Holy God. And it's not our doing. It's not our parents' doing. It's not something we can be born into. It's of God there in verse 13. The statement in verse 13 is huge, and we can't overlook it. It means even if we are living in a Christian nation or a nation that defines themselves as a Christian nation or a God-fearing nation, we are not born as Christians. There are not parents or any other individual in our life that can make us be Christian. And we cannot will ourselves to be Christian. There is nothing we can do to earn the right to be a child of God. That's what verse 13 is telling us. It is only of God. And just as God spoke and sent his word, only God can save us from our sinful state. And how did God do this? Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God, the perfect God, became flesh, became human. He became man in Jesus Christ and he dwelt. That word dwelt means that he lived. He set up camp among sinful people. The word dwelt carries a lot more significance than that, particularly to John's Jewish audience. The word dwelt could also be read as tabernacled or tented. 
It's tabernacle language taken from the Old Testament. It is saying that God set up camp. He set up his tent. He set up his tabernacle in our world. Many of us have been going through the Old Testament on Wednesday nights and I encourage you to, to tune in if you can. Well, here's where all that Old Testament overview is going to come in handy, particularly in the latter parts of Exodus and Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. After God delivered his people from the bondage in Egypt in the beginning of Exodus, his covenantal people, which he established with Abraham in Genesis, he brought them to Mount Sinai and delivered his law through Moses. That was God's spoken word, which revealed God's perfect and holy being. The law also revealed our sin problem, that we fall short and we sin. We don't always obey God's word. But God knew this, and so in giving the law, he also set up a sacrificial system. But his people weren't just to sacrifice anywhere they pleased. They were to bring their sacrifice to the priest at their tabernacle. The tabernacle was basically this large tent set in the middle of God's people, in the middle of their camp. All the tribes of Israel would be camped around the tabernacle, and it would be in the heart of the camp. It was a reminder to God's people that God was with them, and he was in their midst. The language John uses here in verse 14 about how Jesus dwelt among us is to capture what God did through the tabernacle in the Old Testament. God is with his people. He is in their midst and now even more so with Jesus Christ in flesh. Not only through Jesus Christ, but as a believer, we have been given the Holy Spirit who now dwells inside of us. And the Spirit of God has now set up camp in our hearts. It is tabernacled. It has dwelt inside if you have ever doubted if God is for you, then this verse is a reminder that God is amongst us and God is in us. And so he is to be our heart's desire. He is to be the center of our life. This is what the story of Jesus is calling us to. It is reminders we go about in life. The presence of God moves with us and leads us. D.A. Carson writes that God has chosen to dwell amongst his people in a more personal way. C.S. Lewis described what God did here in verse 14 as the grand miracle. Here it is. God chose to come to us. God chose to save us. God chose to live in us. God chose to walk among us. God chose to be known intimately. The God of the heavens and the earth chose. This is why he's worthy of our worship. John would write later in his first epistle, and this is the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that, through, so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. C.K. Bear writes, propitiation implies that Christ's death appeased the divine wrath called forth by our sin. In other words, God obliterated the result of sin through the atoning sacrifice of Christ and his resurrection. This is the love of God and the significance of Christ becoming flesh and dwelling amongst us. This is the story of Jesus. In verse 14 is the very first time that John, the apostle, inserts himself into Scripture when he uses the word we there in verse 14. Notice it isn't I. 
John isn't just speaking about himself, but he's speaking about those that he is discipling and leading, most likely at the church in Ephesus. He's saying that he and all those who are with him have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father. It's another way of saying that they, have, they were eyewitnesses to who Jesus is, much like Luke begins with his gospel, speaking of the eyewitnesses to compile his gospel. It's telling us that though this story can, seems like it's too good to be true, he says that we have seen it personally for ourselves, and it's all true. The story of Jesus is about grace, and the story of Jesus is about truth. And that's a dangerous thing there in verse 14. He says he's full of grace and truth. Because sometimes as individuals, as believers, we can lean one way or the other. We can, we can lean more towards grace, and so we can make our sin be something so small and say, well, I'm covered by grace. Or we can lean more towards truth, and, and we can come up with all these legalistic demands, much like the Pharisees did. But here's the thing. As a believer, we have to live in the center, grace and truth. Jesus calls us to live in the grace and the truth of who he is. John drives this home in verse 16. It says, from his fullness, we all have received grace upon grace. And that's an interesting phrase there in verse 16. What does that mean? Does that mean God gives us a little grace here and then a little bit more there? Does that mean that God kind of gives us grace at one moment in time but knows that there's going to be some days we're going to need more grace? No, that's not what it's saying. When it says grace upon grace, it says when we receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we receive the fullness of God's grace, which is truth and grace. Our salvation is God's full grace. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved. Grace upon grace could be read as grace on top of grace or grace in place of grace. The way it may help you understand is think of it like a buffet of grace. I know we can't go to buffet tables right now, but just admit it. When you go to a buffet, that very first plate you get is food on top of food. It doesn't matter. You can go back as many times as you want. You, you, that first plate is always just a heaping pile of food as if you're not going to be able to find it the next time you get there. That's the image of grace upon grace. It's grace on top of grace on top of grace. And since God was led, or John was led to use the words dwelt among us in verse 14, which takes us to the tabernacle. It lets us know that John is keeping this train of thought. This grace upon grace says, okay, the first grace was the law. The law actually revealed God's grace. Even though the law reveals our sin, it also revealed God's grace because God did not leave mankind to try to figure out for ourselves what does God want from us. The law came first, and the law was the first form of grace because with the revealing of the law came the sacrificial system or the way to which we can make ourselves right with God that's grace and then Jesus came he lived and dwelt among us and he was the fullness the fulfillment of the law by fulfilling all that the law required and by our faith in him he has released us from the law's legal demands Paul understood this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, By the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal de demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we now stand before God in a fully sanctified, fully redeemed, fully forgiven, fully righteous, and fully graced life. That's who I am because of the story of Jesus. We know the law. 
grace, and we know the fulfiller of the law, grace, or grace on top of grace, grace upon grace. Yet God didn't even stop there. There's more grace upon grace. The beauty of what God did from the very beginning of time in Jesus Christ is through Christ, we can now know God more deeply and intimately. Verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this verse can be hard to understand at initial reading. In Exodus, it takes us to that story in Exodus chapter 33 where Moses asks to seek, see the glory of God, to which God replied, I will make my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I am gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. But here is Jesus, grace upon grace, the only God who is at the Father's side. That's speaking of Jesus there. He is the revelation of God. It is the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, which surpassed Moses's back in Exodus 33 when he was hidden in the cleft of the rock and saw the backside of the glory of God. It emphasizes the intimate relationship that Jesus has with the Father who has come to make God known in the same intimate fashion to us. Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so when God sent his son, he sent the full revelation of himself so he might be fully known by the people who were created in his image. The phrase, he has made him known, is the story of Jesus. It says the story of Jesus is the exegesis of the hidden mysteries of God. The exegesis means the story of Jesus is the critical explanation and honest interpretation of all who God is. Leonard Sweet writes that Christ entered his own creation to reconcile it back to himself and to his Father. The Creator became the creature to make peace with an alienated creation. This is the embodiment of God's love for us and his grace upon grace. God created a perfect creation, and then he watched it fall into sin, chaos, and destruction. But God didn't throw his hands up. He didn't walk away. He didn't quit. Instead, God became flesh and played by the rules which he created to save the world he created. So even though the world was in sin and defined as an enemy of God, that's how God defines those who are in sin, as his enemies. God came near Emmanuel, God with us. Verses 1 through 18 is John's incarnation story. But not only did Jesus Christ come as God in the flesh, God who is now flesh became the full representation of all of the world's sin on the cross. So the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of God in the flesh, what happened is he became the incarnate sin of mankind, taking all of its dark, evil, idolatrous ways and nailed it to the cross. The story of Jesus begins by understanding that God loved us so much that from the very beginning he was willing to risk it all to save us. God went all in for us. The story of Jesus brings us intimately into God's presence to hear his voice and to know him fully, not partially, not in, in parts, but fully know the God of the heavens and the earth. Finally, the story of Jesus is meant to change us, 
because what God has done for us. My question this morning is, have you accepted the story of Jesus personally? Have you accepted what is known as the gospel? If you haven't, I want to give you this opportunity. The gospel is this. God created you for a relationship with him. But your sin is separating you from the God who loves you and has fought for you. And though you may try to be a good person and do good things, you cannot remove your sin. You can only be born of God, verse 13. That means you can only place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and dwelt among us, who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled the law of God, who died in our place on the cross and rose again three days later. The Bible says when I believe that God loves me that much and that Jesus Christ did that for me, and I believe in my heart that he is Savior and Lord, that he rose from the grave, I will be saved. And this gift of eternal life is for anyone and everyone who would place their faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. If you have yet to do this, I'd like to invite you to pray and call out to God. Say, God, I am a sinner in need of your forgiveness. I believe your son, Jesus Christ, died for my sins and rose again that I can be forgiven. And I am accepting him now as my Lord and Savior you prayed that prayer this morning, I want to encourage you to reach out to me, Pastor Mike at harvesthill.org, or you can let me know through other mediums if you have that access. But I want to celebrate with you. Know that even if you're by yourself and you prayed that prayer, the heavens erupted in praise and rejoicing. Maybe you've already accepted Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. We need to understand that the story of Jesus is meant to overwhelm us with how much God loves us. And move us into a place of loving God through our words and our actions. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbors as you would love yourself. So the story of Jesus moves us to a story of love. I want to thank you for being with me this morning. I hope you all are doing well. Let's close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for your story. Thank you for coming to save us. Thank you that you had this in place from the very beginning before we could even know what sin was or, or the, the consequences of that sin. Lord, thank you that you have planned every intricate detail of our salvation. Thank you, Lord, for those who are listening and have accepted you as their Lord and Savior for the very first time. Those who are listening and have already accepted, Lord, and, and are now being overwhelmed by your love for them and how much you are for us, not against us. Lord, as we go out in this world, let us be the light that you command us to be because the light that is inside of us. Knowing no matter what happens in this world, the darkness cannot overcome that light. Forgive me if I have failed you and gotten in your way. Forgive us as we have failed you even in this day. And Lord, continue to mold us and make us more into your likeness. Continue to transform us into your likeness. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.